1: Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez, as we continue with our study in the book of Acts. Paul and Barnabas are on their first missionary journey, and are currently in Antioch and Pisidia, preaching boldly in the synagogue. We'll pick it up in Acts chapter 13, verse 19. Once again, that's Acts chapter 13, verse 19.
0: Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. Remember the whole theme of the book of Acts is that Jesus is still working through his church and the same way that he's going to work today through us. And as we leave here and, and use us, he's still working. But in verse 19, and when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he divided their land to them by lot. So he's giving them a history lesson here. And after that, he gave unto them judges about the space of 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward, they desired a king. And so God gave unto them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, by the space of 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. So he takes them from all the way back to the beginning of their time in Egypt, all the way up to David. And and the idea that he's trying to convey here is, is to show that God had a goal. And each step that he took with them, he bore with them and cared for them. He had a goal in mind. And the goal was where he said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. David is held in this high esteem. And every wonderful event in Israel's history, even something so grand as David, though, it all led to a man who would truly fulfill all of God's desire. It all led to the ultimate goal of sending the Messiah. And so Paul proclaims, now he starts here in verse 23, he says, Of this man's seed, David, has God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. And so Paul explains, you know, we have this rich history of God doing all these things for us, and yet in each and every movement of where we were in our history, it was all to bring us to this point of Jesus. And so Paul proclaims, that's why I'm here. I'm here to announce that God's goal is finally achieved. Jesus has come. Now, this would catch them a little off guard. It'd be like all of a sudden me showing up and going, hey, Jesus came back today. Now you'd know I was a false prophet because we're here. But the point being is that that's the type of seriousness of the announcement that the Messiah has come. These are the things that was the hope of every Jew. The Messiah has come. Well, how come I didn't know about it yet? Why am I just finding out about it from you? And so Paul, they probably heard some stories, but not the full story. And so after dropping this bomb on them, Paul is going to explain. He's going to give them the full rundown. And he starts right at the beginning with John the Baptist, someone they would all have heard of as well and be very familiar with. So verse 24 says, Now when John had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John fulfilled his course, he said, Whom do you think that I am? I am not he, but behold, there comes one after me whose shoes of his feet I am not worthy to loose. Now, this would be something they had heard, something they were familiar with. As they would make that trek and that trip to Jerusalem, they would have heard about this guy out in the desert who's saying the Messiah's coming. So he's building this argument and showing that, that as he's introduced Jesus to them, it's not just his idea. That John the Baptist had said that he was not the Messiah, but he was preparing the way for the Messiah. And therefore, this is a word of exhortation, but it's so much more. It's a word of salvation. And so in verse 26, he says, men and brothers, children of the stock of Abraham and whosoever among you that fears God, to you is this word of salvation sent. To you, he says. Not just to the world, but to you, the individuals that were sitting there, the Gentile God-fearers and the Jewish people who were there. It was for them. The gospel is personal. He's saying God loves you dearly and deeply and he wants you to hear this message of salvation. If you're here today, do you know that God loves you? That you're not here by mistake? That he cares about you? That he's intimately interested in your life? That he doesn't want you to go down paths that aren't good for you? That he doesn't want you to perish if you don't know him? Well, if the message is personal, it means it also must be received personally. You can't hang on to someone else's faith by joining them in their church attendance or in other religious activities that they do. Paul brings this point up because he's about to explain to them that everybody didn't accept Jesus. In fact, their own rulers, their own religious leaders killed him. Verse 27. For they that dwell at Jerusalem and their rulers because they knew him not. Notice he doesn't say our rulers. Their rulers because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath day, they have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause of death in him, yet desired they, Pilate, that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Here's where the gospel message starts. It starts with Jesus's sinless life. Jesus, who was the promised one, the one that John prophesied of, and now we see here the one who was killed according to the scriptures. Those that dwelt in Jerusalem, even though they read every day, every Sabbath day, they read the the words of the prophets, they can't hear their voice. It says, for they that dwelt in Jerusalem, it says they did not know him. They did not know him. Why? Well, (laughs) the same reason that uh, it is today that people don't know him. Ignorance is still the great slayer of faith in Christ and it's why we need to go. It's why we need to tell others. We're gonna have two mission trips this summer and we're gonna try to bring the word to places that haven't heard about Jesus. I wanna encourage you. Think about what it means for you to go. Maybe for you to go might mean to support one of the young people or, or other older people that might be going. Maybe it might be your part to, play, be to pray every day for one of those people that's going down there. Maybe to pray in preparation. Or maybe it's to go yourself. But the point being is that we all need to recognize that there are people who need to hear about the Lord. People need the word. They need to learn the truth about Jesus and their need for salvation. And what's fascinating is by their ignorance of the scriptures, they ended up fulfilling them, these religious leaders, thus proving that Jesus was the Messiah, the very one that they didn't want anybody to hear that he was. What does the Bible say? That if they knew, if they understood, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory, Right? They didn't have a clue. They didn't know their own scriptures. And so though they found no cause of death in him, yet they desired from Pilate that he would be slain. There was no legal grounds for Jesus' accusation. He lived a sinless life. But he also paid the price for us with his substitutionary death. And so when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and they laid him in a tomb. But praise God, he didn't stay there. Verse 30, Jesus' sinless life, that's an important part of the gospel message is substitutionary death. That's an important part when you're preaching the gospel to somebody. But thirdly, his supernatural resurrection. In verse 30, Paul moves on, he says, but God raised him from the dead. And he was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem who are his witnesses unto the people. And this would be the hardest thing for them to conceive. What, they, they killed him? Oh, but yeah, but he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. God raised him from the dead. Well, dead is dead, right? I mean, you don't come back from the dead. And Paul will spend the rest of his sermon proving that the Messiah would die and rise again. And so he says here, listen, he was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. For any claim or any any legal grounds of anything in Jewish culture, two witnesses were required for any Jewish testimony. To be received in any type of legal grounds, he had to have at least two witnesses. So, before even going into the, what the Bible prophesied in the Old Testament, Paul explains that there are plenty of witnesses. If you want to go ask them, go ask them. They saw. But beginning in verse 32, he begins to show them the proof from the scriptures. And so he says, we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto our fathers, God has fulfilled the same unto us, their children, and that he has raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, this day have I begotten you. Now, the first thing that he would need to explain, is how can a man rise from the dead? We had to explain the nature of Jesus, because he's not just a man. In Psalm chapter two, it's a, Psalm 2, verse 7 is where the quote comes from. But I'd like to read to you the whole psalm. It's short. It's only 12 verses. And you can keep your finger in psalms because we're going to go there one more time. There's so many neat things in here. But uh, Psalm chapter 2, verse 1, Messianic psalm, very clear as we read through it. He says, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and their rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Anointed one, the word there means his Christ, his Messiah, against the Lord Jehovah and against his Messiah, saying, Let us break not his, but their bands asunder. So it's not just talking about God the Father, but here we're going to see in a moment God the Son as well. Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Do what you want, basically the Lord saying. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. And I will declare the decree. The Lord said unto me, you are, what does it say? My son. This day have I begotten you. Now that thought was just something so foreign to the Jewish people of that day, that God would have a son, that that, that this idea of a trinity, it wasn't something that was not understood in antiquity, but in this current day, this was so foreign to them. And it's not the only reference. It goes on, and he says ask of me, God saying, the father saying to the son, ask of me, and I shall give you the heathen for your inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So therefore, be wise now, O you kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord, Jehovah, the God the Father, with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled, but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Son is mentioned twice in this psalm. See, he's not just a man. He's God in the flesh. And therefore, he can rise from the dead because death has no sway over the one who is Almighty God, right? It has no hold on him. Every Jew would know this passage is messianic. Every Jew, they would think and they would call their attention to this passage You are my son. This day have I begotten you. Wait a second. Paul clearly demonstrates that the Messiah would be God's son and that he would become a man. And having established this point, he returns to showing how the resurrection was prophesied as well. So verse 34. And as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, he said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Now we read that in our scripture reading. That's from Isaiah 55. But reading those first six verses that we read today of Isaiah 55, it makes it clear again. It's messianic. It talks about the Lord's anointed one again. And the messianic promises are directly tied to God's promises to David. And so at verse 35, he says, Wherefore, he says also in another psalm, You shall not suffer your holy one to see corruption. And this is Psalm 16. So if you just flip a few pages over to Psalm 16, and we see here, David in verse 10, he says, For you will not leave my soul in hell, neither will you suffer your holy one to see corruption. But I'd actually like to start in verse 5 and just read through to that verse to give us some context of why he says it and what it means. In verse 5, David says, The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. You maintain my lot. The lions are fallen unto me in pleasant places. yea, I have a goodly heritage. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My reins also instruct me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also shall rest in hope. When I die, I'm not gonna have a worry in the world for you will not leave my soul in hell. Neither will you suffer your holy one to see corruption. You know, David, this here includes a personal promise to him that he had received from the Lord. I'm not gonna stay in the dirt. I'm going to rise from the dead. I'm going to be with him someday. And yet the key promise is that the Messiah, God's Holy One, he wouldn't even stay in the grave long enough to experience physical corruption, decomposition. He'd rise from the dead very quickly to never die again. For verse 36 says, Paul goes on, for David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, he fell on sleep. He died and he was laid unto his fathers and he did see corruption. His body decomposed. But he whom God raised again, he saw no corruption, no decomposition. And so in verse 38, having talked to them about the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, he now explains what Jesus accomplished by it, by his life, death, and resurrection. And he says, be it known unto you, therefore, because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And you know what? If, If there's nothing you can come away with today, two things I want to leave with you today. And it's from verses 38 and 39. Number one, because Paul says, Why why I say you need to know this? Because he says, You must know this. Be it known unto you. It's imperative again. You must know this. And what is it? That Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, he secured the forgiveness of sins for you and me. Hmm. The word forgiveness is a beautiful word in the Greek. It means to send off or away. And it came to mean to remove the guilt from wrongdoing, to bring about a pardon, a full pardon for someone who is a criminal. And you know what? We must know this. We must have a grip on this. We must understand this. When you put your faith in Christ, all of your sins are forgiven, not just some of them, all of your sins. And God removes all of the guilt and he gives you a complete pardon. He's never angry with you again. Isn't that a great benefit of our salvation? Isn't it a great thing that Jesus accomplished for us, our wonderful forgiveness? But secondly, in verse thirty-nine, he says, "And by him, all that believe are justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses." I don't know about you, but I go through that list. It doesn't take long for me to be busted. I mean, again, you just start with the Ten Commandments, and, and you, you know what the reaction of the Jewish people when they heard the Ten Commandments for the first time? God takes them out into the desert, of course. They finally break free of Pharaoh. They go out to Mount Sinai, and here is thunder and lightnings, and a cloud descends upon the top of the mountain. So much so that a a part of the mountain is charred away. I mean, just God's there in his magnificence and his holiness and his power. And now his voice starts to declare there the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20 You shall have no other gods before me. You know what Israel did? It says they ran. They ran, they ran and they hid behind their tents. And they said, Moses, uh, we we don't want to hear his voice. You go talk to him. Because you know what every one of them was thinking? You shall not lie, I'm dead. (laughs) I I mean, you're, you're, you're two in and you're going, I'm crispy crittered. That thing that's destroying that mountain up there that stood for God knows how many years is now gonna come after me. And it would go through one by one by one by one and the realization would hit, I haven't done any of that. By him, all that believe are justified from all that stuff that we fail. Isn't that awesome? All it is is belief. What does that mean? It means to place one's complete trust and reliance upon something or someone. That's the condition of salvation. You must no longer trust in your own works to get you into heaven. All your hope, all your future rests upon what Jesus did on the cross for you. And here we see for the first time mentioned the word justified. By him, all that believe are justified. It means to declare righteous, to declare right. Not only does God pardon our sin, But he transfers Christ's perfect, sinless, righteous life to us. That's why his sinless life is such an important part of the gospel. He takes that sinless, perfect, righteous life where he did everything that God required. When God looked at him on the Mount of Transfiguration, he said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That's the righteousness that you are clothed with. That's the righteousness that you are clothed with. And I don't feel that way. I wake up daily and I I don't feel that way at all. You know, the alarm went off this morning. I want to get up and really pray. I mean, we need, I need to pray. I had snooze. <laughs> it didn't take me but four seconds to be in the flesh. And I'm righteous. That contradiction. Wow. He who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation, right? All things have passed away. All things have become new. If you know the Lord today, that's who you are. It's what you are. It's what he's done. And how righteous are we in his sight? All things, I love that. All things that you could not be justified by the law of Moses You are completely justified. Every bit of righteousness God requires is yours in Christ. And now you have full access to the Holy of Holies to come to his throne of grace. And if that doesn't deserve an amen, nothing does. (laughs) God gave us freely what we could never, ever earn by keeping his laws. And you know, that would be a, a huge blow to any of those who had subscribed to that ideal of the Pharisees, that they could be righteous. Anyone who thought they could be righteous through following the law, that would forever lay that low. And, you know, it's a huge blow to the person who thinks they'll get to heaven by being good. That's why the gospel's offensive, guys. You know, it's offensive because, yeah, Jesus is the only way. But you know why it's offensive? I remember it it was summed up best when I was sharing the gospel with a guy once and and telling him about the Lord. And he said, you mean to tell me I'm a good father, I'm a good husband, I work hard, I pay my taxes, I'm a good citizen, I do all these things. I go to my son's t-ball games. And you're telling me that if some drunk in the gutter repents of his sins and puts his faith in Christ that he's going to go to heaven and I'm going to go to hell? And I said, yep. <laughs> because your greatest problem that you don't even see is your pride and your self-righteousness. You don't recognize all the areas that you fall short. Remember Jesus, the rich young ruler came to him? You gotta love Jesus, right? What must I do to be saved? Yeah, keep the whole law, man. <laughs> now you would think any rational person would go, Oh no, you know, I can't do that. I'm in trouble. Is there any other way? Well, let me tell you. No, you know what this guy goes? I've kept it all from my youth. And Jesus is thinking, wow, that's a proud man. Tell you what, take everything you got, give it to the poor. And then come follow me. Then you can do it. Covetousness. He had sin that he didn't even know. And Jesus laid it low right there. I pride, so dangerous. The gospel tells me I'm not good and that I need a savior. And so, where do you stand? Paul's going to give a warning at the end of the sermon, but I, I kind of want to bridge that over to next week and, because the reaction that we're going to get is not a good one. From some, many people, there will be. And, and that may be the case this morning. If you don't know the Lord this morning, maybe your reaction is like, "Well, I, I, I am a good person. I try my best. You know, I hear from unbelievers all the time, I, tr- I try not to hurt anybody. That's how I know I'm going to go to heaven. Or, I, I try to be good. And the problem is, is that doesn't offend anybody because that standard is different for every person you talk to. I used to hear from people when I was in high school and I'd share the gospel with them. I'm not Hitler. Like That's like, like you get a bonus for that? You get an award. I am not as bad as Hitler. Praise God. You're just an amazing individual. There's none righteous, no, not one. That can't be watered down a bit because we need to come to the understanding. Maybe some of you, maybe you're a young person today, you've grown up in church. Christianity is kind of, yeah, well, yeah, I do good things. and uh, Listen, you need to come to the realization that there's none good, no, not one. There's none that seeks after God. And when we come to that and we receive his grace and his goodness because he resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble, we really start to walk in all that God has for us. So if you don't know the Lord this morning, I wanna challenge you, repent. Repent, acknowledge that you fall short. Put all your hope and all your eggs in Jesus's basket because he's the only one who can take care of them. Amen? Let's all stand. And join me in prayer as the worship team comes forward. I know we ran late today, so please get your kids quickly, but the gospel is an important thing to talk about, so I felt like it was important. So join me in prayer. Lord, you are so worthy. And we are not, we not in ourselves, that is, Lord. We find our worth in the love that you've set upon us. We find our righteousness, of course, in you, in your free gift. So, Lord, this morning, maybe we've been proud with a spouse, or maybe we've been proud in just our, our lives, or maybe even growing up as a, a person in church, we've become proud and, and just we think we're okay. And Lord, we want to have a moment with you right now where we recognize I'm not okay. <laughs> Me, in and of myself, is never Okay. Lord, by your grace, we are justified. And as justified people who have already given our lives to you, Lord, we wanna recognize each and every day our daily need for you, for our sanctification as well. It's all you, always only Jesus. It's all you. So we just yield our lives to you, our hearts to you now. Lord, even now, we just, uh, once again, we recommit ourselves to you. We say, oh, we repent. (laughs) Even as Job said, I repent of myself Lord, we are not righteous in our own efforts, but, Lord, you have made us righteous. And so now, Lord, for for those who are receiving you, those who have said, I repent of my sins and I want to put my faith in Christ, would you forgive them, Lord? Would you wash them and cleanse them and make them your child? And, Lord, we thank you for those, uh, all of us, Lord, who have received you already. Lord, we thank you for our righteousness that you have given to us. We thank you for that forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.
1: The gospel is powerful, and no one who hears it can remain unchanged. It's a crossroads of decision. Which way will you go? This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play.